God, I thank you for the folks in this room and their interest to get together and study your word um, early on a Sunday morning. And we thank you so much for the rich treasure that scripture is. Um, Lord, I, I am never, it never ceases to amaze me that the God of all creation who knows all things and has all wisdom can communicate everything that he wants to say to us in this book. And so we give you praise and thanks for that. And I ask that we would be committed to knowing your word and uh, abiding by your word. And uh, I pray that you would lead and guide our discussion as we conclude Mark this morning. Let everything that takes place in this room be to the praise of your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to wrap up Mark 16 today, and we're, what we're going to do is next week we're actually going to start Ephesians. Um, so, uh, yes, I decided I don't really feel like I have the capacity right now to deal with eschatological debates, so I guess we'll deal with predestination and election debates instead. <laughs> <laughs> so Ephesians should be fun. Mark 16. Wives submitted to, submitting to their husbands today in, no, Ephesians. in Ephesians. I think they're opening up more. <laughs> yes, there will be plenty of debates. That's okay. I think sometimes, like, I have my perspective on Revelation, uh, and I feel decently confident about it. But I think sometimes the debates kind of suck the joy out of the eschatological discussions because people can get pretty heated about those things and they can really distract from kind of the, the major messages of Revelation, which is like, be ready and Christ wins. Um, so worth having debates, but Ephesians, I think, will be fun. Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. That's Jesus in the tomb. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, so Mary and Mary and Salome. Is that how everybody says that? Salome? Salome? I'm not sure. Salami? I, I'm guessing it's not that. But <laughs> anyway, uh, they're, they're good Jews here, right? The text very clearly says they've kept the Sabbath. And uh, after having kept the Sabbath, they are now going to pay their respects to Jesus in the tomb. And we can see what do, what do the spices that they're carrying indicate? about their expectation. Yeah, exactly. They are expecting to get to the tomb and find the dead body of Jesus in the tomb, not a risen Lord, right? So the Jews did not embalm the dead like the Egyptians did. Jesus would have just been wrapped in a linen cloth, his body wrapped in a linen cloth and laid in the tomb. And so uh, to kind of keep down the stink of decay, they would put spices on the dead bodies. Um, and so this is a sign of loving devotion from these women to Jesus who has now been taken from them. And so their love and their devotion for him leads them to the tomb. This is about as early as they possibly could have done it. Okay, so, um, you know, if you think about the way the Jews understood the Sabbath, and we're going to cover the time frame here, but Jesus died shortly before the Sabbath would have begun on Friday night, which means he was entombed shortly before the Sabbath begun on Friday night. The Jews were not supposed to do anything like what the women are doing here during the Sabbath, which would have lasted until sunrise on Sunday morning. So 
what we're getting here is a picture of these women who are very devoted to Jesus because this is the very first opportunity for them to do this, right? Without flashlights and electricity, they couldn't go to a tomb in the dark. As soon as the sun rises, they're heading that way. Um, and I think there's kind of an application that might be present here for us. I'm not necessarily one of those people who thinks that the very first thing that you should do every day is your devotions. Um, and yet, if God is deserving of the first fruits of all that we have, it does kind of make sense that the first thing that we would do in our day is give time to him. Um, I think kind of the longer you wait throughout the day, the greater the likelihood is that it will end up becoming a lesser and lesser priority. But there's some people that they do their time with the Lord in the evenings, and that's fine before bed. Um, but, I, but I think there's a, a beautiful principle here that the first thing in the morning that we should do is direct our hearts to God in praise. Um, whether that looks like, you know, you wake up in the morning and your thoughts first go to God or you spend your time reading your Bible or in prayer. Uh, I just think that there, there's a beautiful picture here of us giving the first of our devotion to the Lord. Um, and I mean, honestly, what better way to set the trajectory of your day than to set it on God himself, right? Um, I, I don't know, you know, it, it's inevitable because my phone is my alarm clock. The first thing that I do when I wake up is look at my phone, right? Because it's my alarm clock. And sometimes there will be notifications right there to start the day, right? This happened overnight, you know, some breaking news thing that's happening early in the morning in New York or whatever. Um, and that's a really crummy way to start your day, isn't it? thinking about all the terrible things that are going on in the world versus setting your mind upon the Lord. But let's also acknowledge that uh, if you're the kind of person who's like, okay, I'm going to spend my time with Jesus in the morning, check that box, and then my devotion to him is completed, and that's all that I need to do, that's not appropriate either, right? Because ideally, we would be giving our entire lives to Christ, not just some checkbox period of time. Any thoughts, comments on that? God deserves all of our devotion, is the point. Um, and I think a good way to start our day is by giving him devotion. Um, so anyway, I think the women, these women set a, a kind of cool example for us in that way. So how does the Bible begin? Literally, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. And what is the first thing that he creates in that process? God said, let there be light, there be light. and there was light, okay? <clears throat> so I'm going to uh, make the point here that creation begins with God saying, let there be light. New creation begins with the dawning of light, okay? Uh, there are no coincidences for Christians, right? If you believe in a providential, sovereign God, then there are no things that are purely coincidental. All things are ordained, controlled, planned by God for his good purposes. This doesn't mean that we should take everything. Maybe you know these people who are like, they're like, oh, well, this thing happened in my life and it was clearly a sign from God, right? Um, I, I don't think as Christians that we should be looking for signs from God. I just think that in a world that is lovingly governed by a God who providentially is involved in all things, then every event has purpose and meaning. We may not know what the purpose and the meaning is all the time, but every event is purposeful and meaningful. And so I would argue that in this case, the dawn is meant to cause us to think back to the dawn of all things, the dawn of creation, and help us see that Jesus is in the act of his resurrection, making a new creation. So I, I would say in this current age, that new creation uh, is not something you can necessarily see with your eyes. It's kind of a counter stream that's occurring inside of the creation as we know it and see it and experience it. And then I think the Bible is pretty clear at the end of all things, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a final consummation of the new creation that Christ began at his resurrection. So what I'm arguing is that this dawn 
that the women find themselves heading to the tomb connects the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1 with the new creation of Christ with the final recreation or new creation of all things in the kingdom yet to come. Anybody else want to comment on that? All right, I think it's kind of beautiful. I mentioned this already, but we have kind of a compressed time frame for Jesus' time in the tomb. Um, growing up, you know, you hear all the time Jesus was in the tomb three days, but it's not how we would typically think about or describe days in our kind of Western American culture. Jesus is raised on the Jewish first day of the week. So the Jews didn't even have like days of the week like we have, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They had Sabbath. And then after Sabbath came the first day or the second day or the third day. So they just counted everything from Sabbath. And Sabbath was Friday night at sundown to Sunday morning at sunup. So it actually began Friday night, uh, was all day Saturday, and then ended Sunday morning as we think about it. Okay, So this means that Jesus um, was raised on the first day of the week, which would be our Sunday morning. And there's some indication in scripture that that's why Christians gather on Sunday. We gather Sunday morning, right? Not at sunrise technically, um, but we gather in the morning on Sunday, uh, sort of as a, uh, you know, hearkening back, I guess you could say, to the resurrection of Christ. That means Jesus was, so Jesus spent three days in the tomb, he was raised Sunday morning. He was in the tomb all day Saturday, which was the Sabbath. And he went into the tomb Friday, Friday night. Okay, Friday afternoon, probably, evening. Um, so in the way we think about time, Jesus was really in the tomb kind of one day. Okay, if you were to say, I went away on vacation for three days. And people were like, when did you leave? And you were like, well, I left Friday night. When did you get back? Sunday morning. They'd probably be like, oh, I think that you took a one-day vacation, right? Okay, but uh, the Bible counts this as three days, and it technically was, right? It took place Friday. It would happen. Uh, it, it was still occurring Saturday and into Sunday morning. Um, but I just want you to know that because um, I think if you're told your whole life, Jesus was in the tomb three days, and then you find out it was Friday night to Sunday morning, you're kind of like, wait, what? That doesn't sound like three days to me. Only Mark uh, records the details about um, the women here discussing the stone over the tomb. So that's kind of interesting, right? We get in verse 3, this little picture that the women, as they're going, uh, they, they know that there's this stone blocking the entrance. Who's going to roll it away for them? And I think that little detail, so you've heard me say probably a million times that I was an English literature major, so I enjoy reading the Bible from kind of a literary perspective. I think this detail adds some drama to the story, right? It, it brings some conflict into the story. Um, <clears throat> it adds a bit of suspense. And, I mean, Mark's gospel just moves so fast that the conclusion to the problem comes immediately, right in verse 4. Because they're talking about the stone, it's going to be a problem. And then immediately they look up and they see, oh, the stone is rolled away. Which also creates suspense, right? Because if if the woman if the women couldn't do it, and now the stone is moved, how did that happen? Um, and so we have the first sign that something really remarkable, um, something even supernatural, has occurred. Even though Mark doesn't mention any angels, he doesn't use the word angel. He still manages to create this kind of suspense by saying that this stone has been rolled away. Um, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, this may be, I mean, to me, it's a little bit weird. I, I don't know what I would do in this situation, but, you know, they find, in, they find the tomb with the stone rolled away, and they perceive that as some kind of invitation to enter into the, to the tomb rather than, you know, run to find somebody else. Uh, I guess if I was devoted to Jesus like these women are devoted to Jesus, maybe my curiosity would draw me in as well. But verse 5 says they enter the tomb, right? And um, they've perceived that something is not the way that it should be, and that's how they respond. And their investigation yields a, a very strange and alarming discovery. 
So the body of Jesus is gone. And if you were expecting to find a dead body in a tomb and it wasn't there, what would you assume? Yeah, somebody took it, right? Um, People don't rise from the dead, which is why the story of Jesus rising from the dead is so wonderful because it actually occurred, right? The body of Jesus is gone. Instead, they find a young man sitting to the right inside the tomb. He's dressed in white, and then he speaks to them, and he commands them to see the empty tomb. Um, you know, that's a, kind of at the end of verse 6 there. See the place where they laid him. And then he commands them to go and carry a message to the apostles, and specifically Peter. I love that Peter is uh, specifically singled out here. And the message they're supposed to carry is that Jesus is risen, right? Go tell the apostles he's risen. And so they flee the scene. They're gripped by astonishment and fear. Peter tells us in verse 8, trembling and astonishment had seized them and they were afraid. That's really how verse 8 ends with that word fear. And um, let me bring in some details from some of the other gospels here, okay? So Matthew adds that this man who speaks to them is an angel. He specifically says angel. Um, Matthew also speaks of an earthquake that Mark doesn't mention. And Matthew records Jesus encountering the women and giving them the command about Galilee directly. So Mark says that it's a man in the tomb, which he never says it's an angel. We assume it's an angel. I guess maybe it could be Jesus himself, maybe. Um, But uh, Matthew records that it's Jesus who encounters the women and tells them about Galilee. Luke has the women searching the tomb and then two angels show up. Um, Mark records the women saying nothing to anyone. He doesn't record them saying anything. Luke records them going back to tell the disciples. And then Luke makes no mention of the women meeting the disciple or meeting the uh, meeting Jesus. Sorry. And then John doesn't mention the angels at all. Instead, he tells us that the women ran back to to tell the apostles and Peter and the other disciple, who I think most people believe is John, um, ran to the tomb to investigate. Uh, so if you line all these gospel accounts up, what, what appears to be the case? If you line all the, the four different gospel accounts of this scene at the tomb up, what, what seems to be the case here? Well, some people would argue that um, you can't get the facts straight, right? That the the accounts have too many discrepancies uh, to actually be true. And I would simply say there are lots of different ways to reconcile all these. I actually don't want to spend our time doing that because I don't think it's actually difficult. Um, it, It is an important exercise to be able to make some reasonable explanations for why these different accounts are not contradictory but I really think it can be a total distraction when we immediately go into let's figure out all the difficulties why would that be a distraction yeah why why is immediately saying look these these things don't all line up so let's talk about that why would that be a distraction what is the main point Right? Jesus has risen from the dead, guys. I'm, again, I'm not saying that the differences are, are something we can just, like, you know, totally ignore. I think it's, it's worth having an argument for why they can be explained. But let's not lose sight of the fact that we are reading a story about Jesus being risen from the dead. That's the point, right? None of the gospel authors would want us to come to the end of their gospel and decide that the thing that we should really do now is have a debate about how to make them all make sense. No, they want us to come face to face with the risen Jesus and and deal with that difficult truth. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So the Bible is not trying to present us here with some kind of math or philosophy problem to solve. The Bible is trying to put us in front of Christ and make us deal with that reality. So for those with eyes to see, the point is that Jesus is risen. The tomb is empty. Um, Death has basically been tamed. Um, God has been reconciled to man. The one who gave up his life has now taken it up again. So that's the point. Okay. Um, You know, if you ever find yourself in some kind of debate with somebody who wants to make a big deal about how the Gospels all have these different accounts that don't make any sense, um, I think you should tell them to stop uh, being distracted from the real issue, which is what will you do in light of who the Bible says Jesus is? All right, so I would actually suggest to you that Mark's Gospel ends here at verse 8. I'm not suggesting you take out scissors and cut out verses 9 through 20, but I would argue that what follows in verses 9 through 20 is not actually inspired scripture, which creates a bit of a problem for us if you're willing to accept my argument. Um, And I'm going to go into details. That's really actually how we'll spend the rest of our class time. So does anybody want to make any other comments on verses 1 through 8? Okay. Raise your hand if your Bible does make some kind of note between verses 8 and 9. Either some kind of uh, thing in the text or a footnote. Yours doesn't? It has brackets. Is there anybody whose Bible puts nothing in between verses 8 and 9? No no mention that what follows from 9 to 20. Mine doesn't. Yours Mine doesn't. doesn't. Is yours King James? It's Geneva. Geneva. Mine doesn't. It's just, it's just a liner. Mary Magdalene sees the risen Lord. Okay. No no footnotes, no comments. Okay. Oh, well, on 16.8, I mean, the only footnote is NU text and M text omit quickly. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's spend some time talking about this because uh, this can be a, a, a little bit confusing. Um, and I, maybe I've told this story before, but uh, I was in a men's Bible study. This was probably six, seven years ago now. We were meeting at Starbucks Tuesday morning. It's the same one we have now. But there was a guy who recently started coming to our church, and he only read the King James Version, which did, doesn't make any notes about any of the textual uh, critical stuff that that kind of modern scholars have, um, or that modern translations mention, and so we were going through the Gospel of John, and John eight uh, is not present in the earliest manuscripts, and so our you know some guys had ESV or NIV, which made a note of that, and this dude was like, wait, what are you guys talking about? He'd never even heard of this, and so we began to have a little bit of a discussion about how um, uh, you know there's some serious debate about whether the, the the story of the woman caught in adultery belongs there in the Gospel of John. And uh, this dude, like, totally lost it and, like, basically accused us of being heretics and left our church and, you know, thought that we ignored the Bible and made changes to the Bible. So I like to kind of talk about this stuff when we encounter it because uh, it helps eliminate some of the shock if you're not aware when somebody says something like, well, what about these things that maybe don't belong in the Bible? Okay. One of the reasons why I like Mark's gospel ending abruptly at verse 8 and without any further details is because it reminds me of Revelation 16, 15, where Jesus declares that he will return like a thief suddenly and without notice. So I like the fact that Mark's gospel, if it ends in verse 8, ends very abruptly. And actually, there, there are other, there's another reason, which is, How does Mark's gospel begin? Very abruptly. Not like Matthew, not like Luke, not like John. Um, Mark doesn't record any of the backstory with Mary. He doesn't record any of the details really uh, regarding like John the Baptist's early life. Um, He doesn't have any scenes from the childhood of Jesus fleeing to Egypt and things like that. It basically just starts with Jesus' ministry, like right out the gate. 
And I like the way that his ending kind of corresponds with his beginning in the same way. It just, again, I'm arguing if it ends at verse 8. And then it really leaves you in suspense. Because what's the next thing that, that we're waiting for when it comes to Christ? Well, we're, wait, we're waiting to see the resurrected Lord. Like, we're, we're, we're waiting for his return. Um, so, uh, having said that, um, and, and also having said that the, the resurrection of Jesus is not a problem for us to solve, I, I do want to spend some time addressing the issue of, of verses 9 through 20. Um, does anybody want to make any comments on what I've said thus far about this? Yes, I just wanted to kind of explain why this is even a, maybe you're going to say that, but I can imagine people are confused maybe. So, so basically, the reason why we have some verses in the Bible, and all the verses, is because they are based on ancient manuscripts that people have found, and they have, there are uh, thousands of them. And, um, and so let's say you have, um, let's say you have 1,000 manuscripts that are all saying the same thing about, um, one gospel and then there is like there are 50 that are not mentioning a particular section or maybe they are adding details that are not found in the overwhelming majority of the other manuscripts um, well these additions or subtractions are less likely to be in the original because if they were in the original they would be in the larger number of copies now, if those copies that have more verses or less verses are also more recent, it means they are farther away from the original writer, so they are even less likely to be accurate. Because over time, some verses can be, you know, they, the manuscript can be damaged, and you can have some portions that are, that are gone, or maybe someone can add something, and so it could happen over time. So basically, the reason why there are some verses that are in brackets is because there are very good reasons by people who study the original documents and uh, they have made judgments based on scientific rules that uh, make certain verses um, very unlikely to be in the original documents and so that's one of them uh, we're not saying hey we don't like this part or we think it don't belong it's because they are they are just historical scientific reasons to to consider some passages as not original. So that's why this whole thing is, is there. Yeah. So what we're really arguing about here, there's a, an area of study called textual criticism. And the goal of textual criticism, at least within conservative Bible-believing Christian scholars, is to discover what the actual autographs said. Okay? So we don't have any autographs meaning we don't actually have the piece of paper that mark himself wrote what we have are copies of what mark wrote and i actually think that's by god's design because we have this tendency to idolize and worship things that uh, we shouldn't worship and i think there would be a temptation for us to venerate a piece of paper that has Mark's gospel on it when the goal is for us to see in the gospel Jesus and venerate him. Um, but we don't have Mark's original gospel. What we have are these different manuscripts that have been copied. And so one of the goals is for us to look at these different manuscripts. One of the goals of textual criticism is to look at the different manuscripts and try and discover what the actual autograph said. Now, what, what we're talking about here are very, very, typically very, very small differences, okay? The Bible that you're reading, you can be like, I shouldn't even use the word like, you can be absolutely confident that you are reading the Word of God. Um, but there are a couple things here and there where it's like, wow, this creates some problems because the manuscript uh, testimonies are a little bit strange, okay? So... Let me make my argument, and then actually we'll read this, this chunk, and then I'll explain my argument in detail. Okay, so here's my overall argument. I do not believe that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is scripture. I do not believe that it's inspired by God. I'm fine with it actually remaining in the Bible with some kind of note like this. Uh, so I like what the ESV does here. They, they decide to leave it in because there's a long church tradition here. Um, but they make some notes that say it's not in the earliest manuscripts. Um, 
that can obviously raise some questions for people that don't really know what that's talking about, but I still think it's helpful. So I believe that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is the addition of some copyist who felt like the end of Mark's gospel needed some loose ends to kind of be tied up. And if you just read it and you end at verse 8, actually, I think you do get that impression. You're kind of like, hold on a second. There's some stuff here that needs to be explained, okay? Um, so I think as a result of that, verses 9 through 20 were amended as a very brief summary of details, gathering information from the other Gospels and also the book of Acts. And it was kind of amended to the end of Mark's Gospel and over time just became assumed to be part of the inspired text. Um, there's evidence, and we're going to go into the evidence, there's evidence that it was added quite early, actually. Um, so that, that is a difficulty. By quite early, we'd be, we'd be talking about uh, second or third century, um, which is still a long time after Mark's Gospel, but in the, in the, in the process of textual, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In the, in the process of copying and preserving the text, that's actually fairly early. Text transmission, sorry. Um, I, I still think it's most definitely not original. So let's read it, okay? First, you've got uh, verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. He said to them, go into, the, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. All right. So let's jump into this in more detail. I mean, actually, before we do that, does anybody notice anything? Like what stands out to you in these verses? Does this sound like Mark to you? Like from the internal evidence, and we'll talk about that, some of the different Greek words that are used. Um, this doesn't actually sound like Mark to me. Okay, well, um, let's actually take a step back because technically there are actually three different endings to Mark. So you have the, the ending that ends at verse 8. Then you have the long ending that runs 9 through 20. But there's a medium ending, and it goes like this. Does anybody's Bible actually footnote it and tell it to say what the, the medium ending is? Okay, the medium ending doesn't have versification to it, but follows verse 8 and just says this. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east of west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now that definitely doesn't sound like Mark to me. Okay, so I think at this point, most Bibles don't even mention that medium ending because it's very clear that one doesn't belong. Okay. So you can see how kind of difficult this idea of looking at these different manuscripts can be. Um, okay, so first let me give a theological argument against the longer ending of Mark. Uh, there is a lot of wonky theology 
weird theology that actually comes out of verses 9 through 20. Now that is not, it's that somebody misinterprets scripture is not therefore an argument that something is not scripture. We have the misinterpretations of scripture all the time. But uh, you've got some weird things in here. Um, verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Right? There's some people that say, look, Mark 16, verse 16 says you have to believe and be baptized in order to be saved. Um, I would disagree with that. I would call that a kind of works theology. And uh, Mark is like one of the, Mark 16, 16 is one of the strongest arguments for Jesus plus baptism salvation. Okay? Verse 17. These signs will accompany those who believe. They will speak in new tongues. Right? So the the crazy charismatics who believe in a second filling of the Holy Spirit, that you have to be that you have to speak in tongues as a sign of receiving the Holy Spirit. This is a strong verse for them to make that case from. Um, and uh yeah. The other one would be <laughs> serpents and poison. Has anybody heard of these crazy churches they bring, where they, they like literally handle poisonous snakes and like drink poison? Like they get that from this ending of Mark. Okay. So there have been some weird theological perspectives that have been upheld with these verses in particular. Um Let's and, and here's here's the problem. Not that Mark says these things, but that in saying them the way he says them, he seems to make them normative for Christian experience. These things obviously happen. Read the book of Acts. Paul handles a snake. It bites him. He doesn't die. It's a um, uh, what's what's the snake that's mentioned there? I can't remember. Is it an asp? I thought it was a viper. That's the word I was looking for. Viper. So he handles a viper and it bites him and he doesn't die, right? Uh, that's That happens. But Mark seems to be saying this will happen as like kind of a common thing in the church, okay? All right, let's get to the text criticism thing. A key principle with text criticism is the question, would somebody who's copying the text try to make it more difficult to read? Or would they try to make it easier to read? Easier easier right if somebody said hey here's a letter can you copy it down for me and then pass it on to this person if you were to sit down and, and work on copying it and you're like oh this part right here is kind of confusing like wouldn't you feel kind of in, inclined to try and smooth it over to make it more understandable so it's just reasonable that if somebody is dealing with a difficult thing that scripture says the natural inclination will be to make it easier, not harder. So that means that when we're doing text criticism, we, we tend to prefer the more difficult reading because you're gonna try and make something difficult easy, not something easy difficult. Does that make sense? Okay, so um, then the question is, do you think that, that a, what's more likely here? That a scribe gets to the end of verse 8 and goes, eh, this is kind of incomplete. Let me just add a couple other things to just wrap everything up. Or that a scribe gets to the end of verse 20 and says, you know what? I actually think we should not copy verses 9 through 20. And he sends that on. Verse 1. Right? It's much more likely that he gets to the end of verse 8 and says, uh, let's add a couple of things here. Okay. Oh, there is a footnote in my Bible about that, about um, 6, 9 through 20 not being original. Okay, so your Bible does make a footnote. I think it's getting harder and harder for Bibles to not make any mention of this. Yeah, what were you going to say, Don? Oh, nothing's very important. I was just thinking, like, I don't know when this has been um, added. Do you? Yeah, so I'm, that's where I'm getting next. Okay. I'm getting there. Sorry, maybe I should have just got, got to that point but, first. But I was just asking because... Um, church history says that um, I can't remember, but after like second or third centuries, um, so after Paul's uh, death, there was like some crazy thing happening in the midst of Christians. They were capable of doing things that, like walking through fire and things like that, you know, um, and not being burned. 
So I'm thinking, depending on when that was added, so maybe because those things were happening, they were trying to explaining it. You know, sure. I mean, I yeah. Yeah, it's quite possible um, that that's kind of how it began to circulate in in wider in a wider context. Um, I don't know that we'll ever get to the bottom of a question like that. Like, why did this become kind of the mainstream uh, view? Um, I, I was going to try and kind of like draw an image, and maybe I will. We'll see. Let's. Um, I'll, I'll wait till we get to the the part about. Um, transmission of the text. So what, one of the arguments I'm making is just when it comes to textual criticism, usually the more difficult reading is to be preferred, okay? And I would say that ending in verse 8 is the more difficult reading because it just leaves so much wanting. It's, it's a cliffhanger, okay? Um, now I would say, I, I will say at this point, I think the King James Version is a good translation of the Bible. Um, but I, I think that uh, this is actually an argument against the King James Version. And the reason is because the, the King James Version has this tendency to give people this impression that the other versions are, are taking things away from the Bible. And it's actually quite the opposite. Our goal is to actually give people the inspired word of God. Not the inspired word of God plus the things that maybe scribes have let sneak in there over time that is now masquerading as scripture. Um, so if, 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 if the Bible doesn't, if your Bible doesn't make any notes about some of these disputed texts, I think, I think you should actually be careful because you might be reading, you might be reading alongside of scripture things that are not scripture with the impression that you are reading scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, you know, a good example of this is, does your Bible have the Apocrypha in it? Yeah. Why not? Because it's not Because it's, it's not, not canon. canon, right? It's not inspired. Um, so then if there are things that we have, through very careful consideration, concluded actually weren't in the original autographs but are still in modern translations, then we should, we should want those to be removed. Okay, if you want more information on this, there's, a, there's actually a great website called textandcanon.org, textandcanon.org. Um, it was started by a couple of professors, actually of mine, at Phoenix Seminary, and they've got a lot of great resources on textual criticism, dealing with issues like this. So if you're ever curious, it's a great place to go for resources on this. But actually, these two guys also recently authored a book called Scribes in Scripture, um, which is uh, a phenomenal book that helps us understand the canon and how we got it. So yeah, I would recommend had, that to you. They just had a con, they just had conference a, on I, Saturday. Me, Audrey, and Caleb just went to the conference yeah, did you go? seminar nice. yesterday. It was cool. really nice. They, yeah. they talked about especially this part of Mark where it's not, where because of earlier manuscript stuff, it's not exactly inspired, but still, it's still profitable to read. Yeah, totally. It's still a profitable thing to read. Just like, um, just like some of the apocrypha, it's not inspired, it's not canon, but some of it can be edifying to read, unlike, but then there's like things like gospel tongues, which is stay away from. <laughs> yeah, and that would be my position. Like, I'm, I'm actually not advocating that, uh, that verses 6 through 20 be, or I'm sorry, verses 9 through 20 be removed from the Bible. I'm just arguing that, you know, for the sake of church history, let's keep it in there and consider it, but I, I wouldn't actually say that it's inspired. Okay, so um, let me, yeah. I just want to say that um, some people have made statistics about the New Testament. They say 99.9% .9 is not disputed. Yeah. So that's the thing, right? It's not, oh, wow, I'm going to understand that like every other page has a questionable account. It's a very tiny part if you count the whole thing, right? Um, but it's there, and it's good to know why people disagree, right? And they disagree because they have actual scientific reasons. And uh, I mean, look at this. The reason why it was not in brackets for a long, long time was because people had, they didn't study correctly and then there was the bias. So now, how, how likely is it for people who are true Christians to actually come out and say, you know, these passages that everybody has been thinking for a long time are accurate, they are not. Like they must have overwhelming evidence and they do this for, for for the uh, for, for integrity, right? If you're using principles, you can't just change your principles when you come to a passage 
that just doesn't have the uh, the uh, the data, the backup, to see that it's uh, it's original. So it's a very small portion of the Bible. Like when it says, uh, you cannot get this uh, this demon out but by prayer and fasting. Fasting is also in brackets, right? In other parts, just like that, small things here and there. It happens to be the longest one, but it's actually a small part of the Bible. So I think it's encouraging. Yes, thank you. Um, I got a question about yeah. inspiration, and it's it's a big one. It's because there's nothing in the Bible to tell us which texts are inspired. So when we when we say things like this is not inspired, this is, we're really appealing to a council that decided uninspired men likely decided which texts were inspired. We could take the same data and decide. In other words, what makes them more qualified than other people to say is inspired since the Bible doesn't say. Yeah, that's a fair question and I would say nothing. Ultimately, I, I would actually make a higher argument and say we are arguing that it's inspired because of the Spirit's guidance inside of us. So I'm assuming those men were guided by the Spirit and I'm I know that I'm guided by the Spirit as a believer, professing believer, right? I, I, I don't know those guys, so that's why I'm saying I assume. Um, and I would actually say that's an argument for, for me rejecting Mark. Like, I, I don't, I read these verses and I'm like, this just does not uh, impress upon me the kinds of, um, uh, this, the same kind of way that the rest of Mark does. And I realize it's a very subjective argument, but that's, that's kind of what we've got. Um, so the objective is some of the stuff I'm gonna I'm gonna put before you. Like, here's some reasons why this doesn't seem to make sense. Um, but the subjective one is ultimately where we're gonna end because we're gonna say it's this it's the wisdom of the spirit that lets us know that this is inspired or not. And when you get there, it does get a little tricky because it's like, well, these guys said it. It's subjective. I'm saying it. It's subjective. How do you how do you land on that? I don't know. Is that how? What would you say in response to that? No, it's the, it's the same. I just think we should be less adamant about. We know these. The, this book of the apocalypse is not inspired because whatever the criteria you're taking, I think you see. You know, if it was written by an apostle, well, we got books that aren't written by apostles. You know, whatever criteria they're taking to decide which books we have in the Bible, I see gaps. You know, it's like, oh, you're saying it's this, or you know. Uh. So did, I want to make sure I understood something that you said in there. You're saying that maybe the Apocrypha could be inspired? Is that what I heard? Well, I'm saying they've allowed certain books in the Bible that they say what their qualifications are, right? That they have to have the author, um, you know, as an apostle or someone close to an apostle, those kinds of criteria. Got it. And then you see books in there that are like... Don't fit the criteria. Don't fit. And then it's just like, well, this is early. Yeah. It's close yeah. to the original. Well, then, right, Mark? I was close to I'm not making an argument for that. Yeah. I just don't like arguments that aren't shut and dry because then you sound to a to an unbeliever, you do sound like you're you're deciding and then appealing to things that aren't sure there. Yeah. And ultimately that that we have to make our argument and say, I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God because the Holy Spirit has impressed that on my heart. Like because that's First Corinthians two fourteen, right? The natural person cannot accept the things of the spirit because they're spiritually discerned. So that's my final argument. And somebody might say, "Well, that's cyclical. You believe it because the Bible says it, because the Spirit reveals it, because the Bible says it." And I would say, "Yes." And your argument is cyclical. You reject it because you reject it because you don't think you should accept it, right? So we're both stuck in a circular argument. Mine at least has authority that's outside of myself. That's not just me. Um, but I would say with something like the Apocrypha, there are clear indications that some things in there that are written are actually not factually, historically true. So that would be a reason to reject it, right? Because we would expect the Word of God to be true. With something like Mark, this ending, I can't make an argument like that. So, like, so yeah, it's, it's much more subjective. And I get what you're saying. I mean... Sometimes when we make these kinds of arguments to non-believers, we look silly. Um, so we, we, should, we should try to have as, as polished arguments as we possibly can. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of things. I can't remember which um, uh, scholar who said that, but he was talking about canon are not actually decided. 
but they are revealed. And when you think about it, it's about anything, any canon. It's not like a group of people decide what a canon is, just it's revealed to the, uh, to the society. And for God's canon, it's the same thing. It's not like a couple of people get together in one day and then they just pick and choose what they want it. It's that God revealed what the canon is. And that might be uh, a bit difficult for us humans to understand, but God decided what was the scripture he wanted to be in the Bible, uh, and that came to men. And um, also, you're probably going to talk about the copies and things like that later on, so yeah. I don't want to yeah. like overstep on that. But uh, the most copy you find uh, about something, about uh, literature, the uh, trust, the more trustworthy, is that the word trustworthy? Uh, Sorry. Is that the word trustworthy? Yeah. Okay. The more, the more likely it is to be authentic. To be authentic, thank you. Uh, the more the authenticity is, uh, is true. Um, and wasn't you who were telling me about um, the Jewish, like what in the, from old time, we, the, the Jewish like have this copy of the Old Testament, at least for the Old Testament, and the Apocryphals, they never get uh, they never believed in it. They never put it in the in the Torah and in the Bible. If we can talk, talk about that, uh, say Bible for them, but whatever. You see what I mean? Their book. And God tells us that the Jews uh, are there, are His people, and they have the book. So, like the fact that the Jews don't take the apocryphal cannot like tell us this is not sure. part of the of the Old Testament. Yeah, well, like the Book of Maccabees, they might. It's a historical narrative. Yeah, but um, it's not in the back, in, in the book, in, in the Torah book. Well, in the Torah, no, because the Torah is the first, is, is the, 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 yeah. the law and all, yeah. I would just say, like, the argument for me when you say, well, men didn't get in a room and decide what the canon is, I just think that's historically false. Men did decide at a council what the canon would be. We just happen to agree that they made the right decision, isn't that? The correct way to say that yeah but what's interesting about that is so jesus can say to the pharisees the scriptures say when he says something like that he he is affirming that there is a body of text that is inspired by god like there's some kind of canon now at that point he's referring to the old testament but how did that come about? Ultimately, I think it's kind of a blend of these two things. Like, we believe that God preserved the text of his scripture for his people so that they could know him. How did that come about? Well, it came about through some councils where guys came together and put together some criteria by which they could evaluate. Um, so I would make an argument that you've got some, some of both there. That, that ultimately God has revealed it. Um, but I don't. I don't think that's an argument that you can accept apart from the Holy Spirit saying you should accept that. Uh, Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, also, also I say, of course, we know that that a large, large body of the of the church, you know, of course, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, no person, no group, even if one whole country wanted to change parts of the Bible, there's other countries even in like the 14th century, 15th century, other parts of countries around them who had the Bible, who, it had to be some crazy big conspiracy from all the countries to be able to change something in the Bible because if one, even one country did, let's say Germany, I mean, Fran France has and it's like, hey, you, I mean, that's not true. Yeah. And would be able to prove it because it's in not only the man, little bit of manuscripts they had, but also the fact that like, even if you know one group or one council can come together and say that there's so many other people who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, let's say if that council wasn't, who would be able to dispute it? It would have to be one big conspiracy theory, which it, there couldn't be. Yeah. So, so now we're getting into a discussion about whether the scriptures were like intentionally manipulated yeah, and or that, changed, that and it's be. it's it's impossible mm -hmm. because you have these different text families from very different regions that all agree, sometimes in different languages. Um, I do want to try and get through this, so I'm going to move past this. Again, I would encourage you to check out the book Scribes and Scriptures that deals with this question about like how did we get the canon that we have or that website text and canon would be helpful. So let me give you a couple reasons for the longer ending of Mark, okay? Um, the longer ending is actually quoted by some of the church fathers. Uh, so the church fathers were writing, you know, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century. Um, most of those quotations are coming from the later church fathers, so 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, okay? But that's pretty early. 
Um, so this means the longer ending of Mark was in circulation very early, um, within the first 200 years of, of um, you know, the, the scriptures being compiled into one book. Do you, do you know if the, the council that made the canons, that long ending of Mark was in that, what they said was canon? Um, because if they said it, then we're taking what said it, it's canon. Okay, so what's interesting about that is that you have people involved in that in that process debating actually this longer ending. Um, so you have guys like Eusebius and uh, Jerome that are working through that problem, um, and you even have guys like Origen, like in the first second century, trying to deal with textual variants um, in 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 his his book called the not his book but what was called the Hexapla which was seven different, um, you know, like you might have a Greek-English side-by-side. His hexapla had seven different uh, text variants side-by-side, and he was working through to figure out what did the autograph say. So I guess I don't have a great answer to your question. I know that it was in discussion. Um, but yeah, that brings up a point. Like maybe they made an error and put it in there, and now we're saying it didn't belong in there. But we people are not infallible. And another point that I wanted to make about what Jonas was saying is, um, you know, 99.9% .9 of the English translation that you're reading, there's no question about the textual variance. And it's actually even more significant than that. There is no particular theological, um, there, there, there's no major theological doctrine hanging on any verse of scripture where there is some debatable textual variant. Does that make sense? All inconsequential words. Yes, it's inconsequential stuff. I mean, even if we decide this doesn't belong here, we've got this kind of information for us in the other gospels in, in, in Acts. And I would, I would say not, so, not only that, but the earlier, the, clo earlier we get, the closer we get with our um, translations of the Bible, the closer we get to our time, let's say compared to a translation, there was one in like 1860s or so, and then it gets in 1950s, the closer we get to our time, the less variances and less disagreements there are because the more manuscripts we get. There was one in like 1860s, 60 different variants, 1950s, 16, then one 1980s, it was like six, and then now the there was one in like 2013. It was only one variant, and that wasn't even like really even a variant. Yeah. So it's like the closer we even get to our time, the more we can be confident that we have the full word of God, you know, yeah. because we're finding more things. So. Yeah, it's good. Okay, another reason for including the longer ending is just church tradition. For most of church history, the longer ending of Mark has appeared in Bibles, and then you have manuscript majority. Okay, so the vast majority of extant Greek manuscripts of Mark copied between the 5th and 15th centuries. So here's what I have is 500, oh, well, well, 5th century would be 400 through the 15th century. I'm just gonna put 15 even though that would be 14, whatever, you get the point. Um, the vast majority of the manuscripts attest to the longer ending of Mark, okay? What I've drawn up here though shows you that just because a lot of manuscripts say it doesn't necessarily mean that it's legitimate. And here's why. What if the vast majority of manuscripts are being copied from a later manuscript, right? So actually, even though there might be 5,000 manuscripts that record the longer ending of Mark, their origin only goes back to the 400s. Whereas you might have fewer manuscripts, only two, that don't attest to the longer, but go back to a, a, a copy from 200, right? So that can make a big difference. So just because you've got a lot of them doesn't necessarily mean that it's better, okay? But I can, I can also say, just because it's older doesn't necessarily mean it's better either. Because if this older version was copied from a crummy manuscript, then you get a crummy one, even though it's technically older. Does that make sense? So this is, this is a very imprecise science. It's 50% it's, it's, it's science, 50% art. It's the oh. same argument for the Septuagint quotations, except they could potentially be quoting a more original because when we have variants, yeah. like, well, well, why is it different? When yes. I use the Psalms, that's not what right. Yeah. What the Psalms say. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Totally. So let me give the reasons for not including the longer ending. So in in addition to the theological and textual criti critical uh, issues I already mentioned, there are other reasons, okay? So the two earliest complete manuscripts of Mark in Greek are known as Sinaiticus. 
Um, and Vaticanus. They're, they're, they look like that. That's how you would notate them in your... Um, this is a, the Greek uh, letter uh, Aleph, which I'm not very good at writing, so forgive me. But uh, those are the oldest complete manuscripts that we have. So basically, you're looking at this, right? We could say this is Sinaiticus and this is Vaticanus, and they are the oldest. They do not have the longer ending of Mark, which I think is actually a pretty significant argument, okay? Um, the next one would be the contents, vocabulary, and awkwardness of verses 9 through 20 suggest they're not authored by Mark. There's a clear change in writing style here, I think is, is kind of obvious. Um, and, and that becomes even more apparent when you are looking at this in Greek. There are some stylistic changes that are really only only visible in Greek um, with the pronoun ekanos that begins to be used quite a bit in verses 9 through 20. And then the shift from the um, connective day, uh, I'm sorry, the connective chi, which means and, to the connective day, which is a post-positive in Greek. That shift is pretty significant. Again, not something you would see looking at it in English, but it's, it's there. Um, there are serious internal textual issues besides those stylistic changes, though. What do you notice happens in verse 9? You almost have a repetition of verse 1. Why? It's weird. Why does Mark repeat something that he's already explained? And it's much deeper than that because he introduces us to Mary Magdalene right here. He says, now when, when, uh, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. We already know Mary Magdalene. She was with us in Mark chapter 15, verse 40 at the cross. She was at the tomb when Jesus' body was placed there in Mark 15, verse 47. And then we find her coming to the tomb in 16, verse 1. So it's strange for her to be introduced yet again. And Mark seems to borrow a phrase from Luke's gospel which Mark's gospel was completed before Luke's gospel, okay? In, in describing her as the one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons, okay? Um, the restating of the day and time is weird, right? Uh, it, we already were told in verse two, very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And now all of a sudden we're being told that again. When he rose early on the first day of the week in verse nine. And then Mark twice mentions Galilee. In chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says to the disciples, basically, I'll meet you in Galilee. And then here in verse 7, uh, the, the person in the tomb says, talks about Galilee. And then Mark just ends. Now, you've got this addition of verses 9 through 20. I'm calling it an addition. If you really wanted to tie up the loose ends of Mark, why would you not mention Galilee? Right? You get the picture of the upper room, or Jesus appearing to the apostles, but there's no specific mention of Galilee, which I think is just very strange. Then you have some external evidence. So Eusebius is, is right around here. Uh, I can't spell um, Eusebius is right around 300 AD. He's already arguing that the longer ending of Mark is suspect. So that, that, but that means that that longer ending has, has entered into circulation somewhere in there, right? Or maybe even earlier than that. Um, but he's arguing that it's not a virtue. So that's kind of interesting. That's very early. One more thing. Not only do Sinaiticus and Vaticanus not include uh, the longer ending of Mark, but the longer ending of Mark is not found in the earliest manuscripts translated into Latin, Syriac, Sahidic, Coptic, Christian, Palestinian, Aramaic, Armenian, and Georgian. So that means all of those translations into other languages were working from a copy that did not have verses 9 through 20, which I think is pretty significant. Any questions on that? where we're going to have to end. That's the end of Mark's gospel. Let's not lose the end of Mark's gospel. Christ is risen, right? That's what Mark would have us thinking about as we come to the conclusion of his gospel. Yes? So Eusebius and Jerome in the whole century says, uh, it's a different title. So what we're saying, so I'm thinking 
is not nigh to uh, plain, including the bulkhead? Uh, I believe it is included in the Vulgate because I think yeah. that I think that's part of how we end up with a, a lot of this, okay. um, so but not in the earliest Latin manuscripts. Okay. But because he said that it was suspicious, but he included it anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Jerome did. Yes. All right. How about I pray? God, we thank you that Christ is risen, and. Um, we thank you that we can trust your word. Um, we thank you that you as sovereign God desiring for us to have your word so that we might obey it and know you through it. We thank you that you've preserved the scriptures. And we thank you that there's no book in the history of mankind that's like this book. Um, and I pray that as, as fun as it is to talk about these things and have discussions about them and debate them, I pray that our hearts would be surrendered to your word, that in your word we would find life. Like Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, but you fail to understand that, they, that in them uh, they're pointing to me. And I, I pray that we would search the scriptures with the intention of finding Christ. Um, and I thank you that you're a trustworthy God. I pray that your spirit would guide us into truth like Jesus prayed for us. And I thank you for this class. I pray that you bless us as we move into Ephesians. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.